0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We continue to walk uh, through Mark in this Lenten season. we have just jumping into a passage following Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And now as the morning rises on the day following Jesus' triumphal entry, Christ brings judgment, and He brings judgment in the form of, of a parable whose object is a fig tree, But he also enacts judgment with violent prophetic motion in the temple. We have here a Markan sandwich. Mark is sandwiching the the meat of Jesus' work in the temple around two slices of Jesus cursing a fig tree, which tells us what's happening to the tree must be related to what's happening at the temple. Well, what is that connection? What did it mean for those in Jesus' day, and what does it mean for us? Well, that's where we're heading. So I invite you to join me with a word of prayer as we dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, which is living and active. I pray that you might give us open hearts, open minds, and open ears to not only hear, but to receive, and in the receiving be transformed more into the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The presence of Jesus brings judgment, which means either condemnation or vindication. There's either death and destruction or else renewal and life whenever Jesus shows up. Now, the absence of Jesus communicates something as well. In His absence, He brings a quiet shout of warning. Here, for example, after He enters Jerusalem, He Leaves. He departs for about a little two-mile jaunt south and east of Jerusalem to Bethany. God's word is exiling himself from his temple and his holy city. There is silence as Jesus departs the place. And the people are to be warned. Now, as we said, the day before our passage, Jesus has just ascended into Jerusalem, and there was great fanfare. He walks upon leaves of palm branches, doesn't he? And now, second day, as he enters Jerusalem once again, he encounters more leaves. But these are fig leaves on a fig tree, and he sees no accompanying fruit. And the text tells us he was very angry. On tree and in temple, there is an appearance of life, but there's no fruit. That's what we're to see. On tree and in temple, there's an appearance of life, and yet there's no fruit. That's the subtext for our passage. So let's look at verse 12 of chapter 11 in Mark. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for... It was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. If we would borrow a title from a sermon in bygone eras, we could think of fig trees in the hands of an angry God. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus eating with sinners and outcasts. But the last mention of him being hungry was when he was in the wilderness, being tested by Satan. And in that wilderness, he was revealed as the true Israelite, as the true Israel. He succeeded. He's faithful where Israel continually failed. He's revealed as the true and faithful Israel. He becomes God's representative, Jesus does, as prophet, priest, and king, and he's come to judge Israel. When Jesus shows up, judgment is rendered. There's a bit of an ominous note here, as as if God is searching for a faithful Israel. Will He find them? What will He find as He looks at the the, the tree of His people? Now, why a fig tree? That's interesting, isn't it? Why a fig tree here? Well, fruit, as you look at the fruit tree, that's evidence of, of health or sickness in a tree, right? Uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there, the prophets especially mention fig trees. When it talks about God blessing the people, there's going to be abundance of fruit on the figs, on the vines and too. There, it represents peace and prosperity. While if there is a famine of figs prophesied or observed, that is evidence, a vision of God's judgment and wrath. Here and throughout the Old Testament, the prophets have been rebuking religious leaders and lethargic laymen. Because they, they are to be trees that bear fruit among the nations, but they refuse and bear no fruit amongst the nations. That's why John comes, John the baptizer, comes proclaiming the ax, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Jesus is hangry, right? We've heard that term. It's a real thing. We've all experienced it by the end of this sermon. Some of y'all are going to be hangry, hungry and Angry. Jesus is very hangry when he encounters this fig tree. He finds no fig or fruit to satisfy his hunger. But why the anger here? Why is Jesus angry at the fig tree? It's like Mark actually gives a little way out for the the poor little fig tree here, doesn't he? He says it's not the time for fruit, right? So why is Jesus angry with a tree when it's not even seasoned to produce fruit? Well, this is the first indication that what Jesus is doing to the tree is a parable about what he's doing to Israel. Something's going on here, a connection between the two. May no one eat of the fruit from you. It's a warning and a judgment, not only for barren trees, but for God's people. Verse 15 and following. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus is putting a stop here, stop to corruption. As we read this, our first thought, I imagine anyway, is probably something like there must be a, a, some greed going on here or some unlawful commerce that is just running amuck in the temple grounds. But see, Mark gives no indication that that's what angers Jesus here. Deuteronomy 14, in fact, outlines the the process for selling uh, goods for sacrifices in the temple grounds. So what they're doing there is not against God's law. In fact, most likely, following the birth of Jesus, Mary would have purchased the birds for purification in a setup similar to this here. It doesn't seem that Jesus is overturning tables in order to cleanse or or purify the temple from, from greed or unlawful commerce. I believe He is enacting judgment upon the temple itself and her servants, like a fig tree that bears no fruit. The temple is being judged and condemned for fruitlessness. Jesus, in His actions, prophesies the end of this temple. I mean, think about what his actions are doing here, right? He would put a stop, at least for a time, to temple worship, wouldn't he? Pilgrim's coming could not purchase any animals or, 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 or grains or oils that would be offered to God as God commanded. No sacrifice could be procured. People were not moving freely with items toward the altar. Jesus put a stop to the entire temple system, at least for this moment, for this time. Now, why what do you do that? Well, the question could also be asked this way. What do you do with a fruitless tree? Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he refers to the den of robbers that Jeremiah talks about as well. There is a fruitless tree other than the fig tree outside of Jerusalem. And now that Jesus has their attention, because when you start turning the money changer's tables over, you, you get the attention of the people. He's teaching, but he's not teaching anything new. What he's doing, he's plucking the different chords of, of, a, of a song which has been sung about the temple since Isaiah's day and before. That is, the temple was to be a house of prayer. We understand that. But Isaiah's emphasis there is it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, a house of prayer for the nations. That is not only an invitation for God's chosen people to come and gather and worship and commune with the living God, but the temple itself was to be a drawing place for those outside of Israel to come and join in the vibrant uh, worship of the living God. And that worship, that pure and vibrant worship, should begin to bear fruit of keeping justice of loving righteousness, of inviting the nations to share in the blessings of sharing God's name. So if worship is the leaves of the, tr- of, of the trees of our life, that which receives and gives life, then, then right worship should lead to fruit that delights God. It should lead to fruit that builds up His body. It should lead to fruit which the world can then feed upon. But in Jesus' day, the tree of Israel was not bearing fruit. The temple, rather than the house of prayer to draw the nations in, became a house of division. Separating Israelites, one from another, and separating, separating Israelites from the nations. The fruitlessness that Jesus condemns here in this passage, it seems to me, is twofold. That God's house of prayer has become a den of division and a den of rebels. God's house of prayer becomes a den of division. As as Jesus quotes Isaiah, the emphasis again that it's for the nations, but, but religious leaders are excluding the very people that God desires to come and worship Him. It's become a den of division, not a house of prayer for the nations. It's also become a den of, it says robbers here. We can think of it in terms of a den of rebels also, maybe more accurate, insurrectionists or Rebels, rather than righteousness inhabiting the house of God. What Jesus is doing, he's calling up imagery that Jeremiah 7 uses. It's become a den of, of robbers, of thieves, of insurrectionists. And he, Jesus, in quoting this, or using this image, is condemning the religious leaders. They themselves have become rebels, insurrectionists. In what ways have God's people at the time become rebels? Are they fostering insurrection? Well, two two examples. Do you remember that widow who gave her last penny? Do you remember Jesus' response to that? It's angry, very angry. Why? Because the religious leaders are fat and sleek while the widows are poor and going hungry. He says, that's not the fruit of following my way. Likewise, a second example, as we talked about it a few weeks back, uh, it, uh, devoting things, uh, to using the, the doctrine of Korban, where, where sons or daughters would, would use the property and they would devote it to God while neglecting the use of that property for their parents. All the while, while they are robbing widows, while they are robbing mom and dad, they are putting on an air or a face of devotion unto God. They pray, thank you, Lord, that we are not sinners such as these. It is rebellion in God's holy house to take his holy name upon themselves, but they take his name in vain. They are fostering insurrection and rebellion against the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is hangry, really hangry, and he departs. The temple, which is barren of fruit, God's house of prayer, is now devoid of God's word as Jesus leaves Jerusalem, verse 18 and following. The chief priests and the scribes heard it were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. There's a a fear of the Lord that leads to life, or a fear of the Lord that leads to death, a fear that leads towards repentance, or a fear that leads to hard-heartedness. It seems clear that the religious leaders understand, at least in part, what Jesus is talking about here in the temple. He's making plain with his actions. It says they feared Jesus, not only because of his threats that judgment was coming, but because people are listening to him and begin to follow him. They're responding to his teaching. So the religious leaders seek a way to destroy Jesus. The prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Summary, what we've talked about so far, Jesus is enacting something here. He's enacting judgment upon the temple. Because God's people have abused the poor, the needy. They've neglected the care of the widow, the poor, and the nations. All the while, hiding under the guise of a devotion to God. Jesus is putting a stop to temple worship here as a foretaste or a first fruit of the utter destruction that will come to that temple following his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is promising that this temple will be... Destroyed. Now, the thing about the promise of Jesus there is that it comes with great warning and it comes with hope. The warning, maybe, is pretty obvious if you look at the fig tree. The warning is that judgment is coming. Unless you repent and follow Jesus in his way, you will be judged, you will be condemned, you will perish, and the temple system with you. The hope is that God will do something greater something more glorious than even the temple could offer. Now, we've talked about this many times, the image of our God who is a creator God. He takes hold of his creation and then he tears it apart, which is very painful. But when he tears it apart, he graciously rebuilds it into something new and far more glorious. This is the biblical pattern when the creation days, if you go back to Genesis. This is the pattern with bread and wine. And this is the pattern upon which our lives are built and made more glorious through His gracious work in our lives. The Bible tells us that this light momentary affliction of being torn apart is working for us a greater glory, an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison here. The Bible tells us that He works together all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. The hope here is that after God destroys the current temple, which is what Jesus is enacting here, after that, that he will rebuild something far more glorious, far more accessible, a temple that is living, built upon a living stone with the other living stones built upon that chief cornerstone, a house that is built with God's people to be a house for the nations, amongst the nations. God's house first took solid form, if we think back to our Bible, when they built the tabernacle as God commanded. Well, God put an end to that because God's people became rebellious. Now, he replaced that tent-like tabernacle with a solid, glorious temple in Solomon's day. But again, rebellion incurred. God judged them, demolished that temple. And a new temple was built, though it looked less impactful in physical form Its influence far outreached out of Solomon's. So Jesus, as he enters the temple, he's taking hold of the temple once again now. And he's shaking it. He begins to tear it apart. And the death of this temple will pave the way for a more glorious temple. This hope is realized in Jesus Christ, who is the true, lasting, and final temple. The temple that he inhabited the week of his passion would be destroyed by the Romans by the Romans, a few short decades following his own death and tearing apart. But following his resurrection and then his ascension in bodily form, he becomes the new, most glorious temple. Through him, all the nations will have access to the living God. As Jesus himself said from his own lips, he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And so, upon his death, resurrection, and ascension... His prophecy comes true once again. So Jesus brings judgment. There's no escaping it. To the wicked, he brings condemnation and destruction. And to the righteous who dwell with God through Christ, the living temple, Jesus brings vindication and life. And that is the story that Jesus is telling through the cursing of the fig tree. Verse 20 and following. Again, they had left the city. Now they're on their way back in the morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. Withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered." Jesus answered them, "Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He's saying, "Continue your eyes upward." So this is the third day from Jesus's, uh, thir- the third day of Jesus' passion and entrance into Jerusalem. And here we see that judgment is being rendered. Jesus cursed the fig tree, and now it's withered to the roots. No resurrection for this tree, but only condemnation. And I think that's why Jesus says to the disciples, Well, will have faith in God. That is, turn your eyes to what He is doing now in your midst. See, that's what was lacking for the religious leaders. Jesus came as the way, the truth, and the life, and yet those who sought to serve God most, you know, most devoutly Turn their back upon the one whom he sent. We believe, help our unbelief. Faith is a continuing the, to look to Jesus and his promise is fulfilled in his work upon the cross. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. If faith is encouraged, in the first few verses here, we see the force in which Jesus is talking, the power which he possesses. Now, as far as I know, none have prayed and the Rocky Mountains have moved, nor that the Himalayans. I don't think this is a general prayer for those who would seek giant excavators to do a miraculous work. Jesus says, this mountain, What mountain do you think he's looking at? Certainly the temple mount. To pray that God would cleanse his people, to purify the temple means that God will take hold of it and tear it apart in order to build something new and most glorious. Pray that God would have his way with this temple and this people. Throw it into the heart of the sea. Now, the sea could be the Mediterranean. That's quite a toss for any temple mount, right? Even the Dead Sea would be quite a toss for a mountain. What is the sea? We've talked about this before. The sea represents the nations. What would the disciples be praying for but that the nations would come to the temple once again, that this temple and the corrupt worship of God would be overrun by the nations? See, this is what Daniel envisioned in his confusing images, right? But he envisioned that the sea that the nations would come. And likewise, in the book of Revelation, it pictures the nations as a sea flooding the temple mount. And that promise, or that prayer was answered in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed by the nations. See, the temple was to be a house of prayer for the nations. So if the Jews used it to keep nations away, God would have his way and flood his house with foreigners those people who are the other sheep that Jesus talked about, this generation would see this happening where God is destroying the temple, and which is why the last teaching about forgiveness is so necessary. Isn't that interesting how he ends on forgiveness? look at verse 24-25. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven or also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness is the mark of a follower of Jesus. So we read this first in context before we draw principles regarding answered prayer. First, Jesus is encouraging them to pray for the temple's demise and the recreation of a greater, more glorious temple, that the nations would flood to the temple, into God's way, into God's people. And God answers that prayer. But the thing is, this can't be carried out in a vindictive attitude, right? The followers of Jesus, if they would be vindictive and angry at the, the failure of the religious leaders, they would, continue, they would just perpetuate the rebellion of those religious leaders. So Jesus teaches on prayer and forgiveness. The same thing we pray in the Lord's Prayer treat us the way that we treat others, forgive us as we forgive others that's what we are asking god to do to judge us in the same way that we judge others we're inviting his forgiveness as the, in the same manner in which we forgive others and so we think it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living god i mean you can ask the fig tree if fig tree could talk could talk to the table and the money changers fall into the hands of a living God, the religious leaders of the day, or even those who respond in faith to Jesus' teaching, to Peter and others, to those who would be following. So we have to trust that his hands are gracious and loving, that he works with his people in gratitude to God as he tears us apart. There are so many small deaths in life. There are large deaths as well. All of these are a tearing apart. But in order that God might recreate us as his people more clearly imaging his own dear son. New creatures imaging Jesus more clearly. And this is why Jesus exhorts us to hide ourselves in him. He who is the true and the final temple. It is in him whom we do, when we dwell with God. And God is satisfied by the death of his dear son. And so we hide ourselves in Christ in his death that we might share also in a life like his. And this temple, this Jesus Christ, he is to be the temple, also a house of prayer for the nations. That means that we are to be a people who invite others in to this living temple. That we are living stones, being built upon the chief cornerstone who is risen and alive, ascended to rule over all creation for all time. And as God's people, we are being built upon that chief cornerstone. And our posture is not only upward, but it is outward as well. Inviting others into this true and beloved and glorious temple who is Jesus Christ to flee the wrath and destruction that is yet to come, set to fall upon this world as it falls upon a den of robbers. But we invite a watching world come, come to Jesus, come to the new and living temple, and in him you will find life, you will find joy, you will find peace and love in the temple of the living God who is Jesus. Christ. Will you join me with prayer? We do thank you, Heavenly Father, that as you have called us unto yourself and then renewed us as your people, that you are making us a more glorious people in your image or the image of your dear Son. Would you help us to endure the pain as you tear us apart and as you give us to the world? But as we are torn apart and as we are given to the world, would you bear fruit in us and through us that your name might be magnified your body sanctified, and the world fed. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.